Good morning all. Wonderful to have you at church. Uh, those of you who are online as well as everyone who is here in the building as well. It's great to be back uh, from holidays uh, and to see you all. Uh, missed you a lot. Felt like we've been away for ages. Uh, it would be wonderful if you had your Bibles open in John chapter 6, that was page 1069. No slides this morning, so you're going to have to do uh, at least one or two things, not too much, over the course of this morning. But it will help you to have God's Word open there for you. And, if not for that reason, it will help me as well, uh, if you have it open there, to have a glance at uh, we've been spending some time in John over the course of this year, and we've come back to it. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6 through to 10. It's a part of John's Gospel in which there's a whole series of feasts. And in fact, I guess this theme of food and satisfaction really comes to the fore, kicking off in this passage the feeding of the 5,000. And chapter 6, like, unfortunately, it's too big a passage to look at in one day. It's really one section. So I guess you could reflect on today and next Sunday. It's been almost like two parts uh, of a sermon, two passages that, that fit together, that dovetail together. Uh, and so after today, I'd encourage you to have a read of the whole chapter before we come back next week, because it'll only be possible to come back next week and finish the second half of chapter six. Perhaps all the pieces will completely begin to shuffle uh, neatly together. Uh, well, if you are a fan of young adult fiction, or if there's just been that point in your history where you've devoured it, perhaps you've read of the series The Hunger Games. Uh, it's a, depicting a future society, a dystopian society that's set in once what in the USA. It's a society in which food scarcity and hunger is used as a tyrannical tool to control and to manipulate, to direct the social and the political lives of all. And for the novel's characters, it's not only their literal hungering after food that shapes the whole stack of how they live and how they engage with one another, but equally their figurative, their symbolic hunger for, for power or for freedom or for security that fundamentally shapes just about every aspect of their existence. Hunger, it's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? Hunger can be a powerful metaphor for human desire, for those things that we the physical experience of hunger seems the perfect kind of metaphor to describe just how deeply felt many other kinds of longing that we experience can be. We hunger for things. Powerful, deep, insatiable for us. Uh, there's a Princeton psychologist, uh, Elder Shafir, uh, who wrote a book called the, uh, the Psychology of Scarcity. Why having so little so much, the psychology of scarcity. Uh, and in this book he describes these experiments that have been conducted with seasonal farmers, that is a farmer and farmers whose life and farming are dictated by wild swings in the seasons. Those whose pantries are full to bursting with food just after the harvest, but whose pantries are verging on next to empty at the other side of the season. And they found that when a farmer's physical resources are at their lowest, at their most scarce, their capacity for clear thinking and problem solving dropped dramatically in comparison with when their pantries were full. Those things, those hungers, those anxieties about scarcity shape how they thought and experienced every other aspect of life. The anxiety of food scarcity 
compromise their capacity to see and to think clearly. And I reckon that's equally true of Jesus' own disciples in today's passage. This theme of hunger and scarcity kicks off right from the very start. Have a look at you at chapter 6. Uh, and we'll begin at verse 5. At chapter 6, Jesus has headed off to the far shores of the wilderness and the Sea of Galilee. He's gone there onto a mountainside with his disciples to spend some time alone. And as they're elevated on the mountain, they see an entire crowd of people, thousands of people, coming towards them. We pick it up in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test Philip, for he already had in mind that he was going to kill him. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Uh, but how far will they go among so many? Uh, for Philip, Jesus' question about where to buy bread isn't even worth attempting to answer. Did you notice that? Didn't even try to give an answer. Where can we buy food? Where can we ask him that question, Jesus? Even if we had half a year's wages, we wouldn't be able to buy enough even to give everyone just a bite. Why even ask such a question? For Philip, the scarcity of their financial resources meant it wasn't even worth engaging with the question that Jesus posed. At least Andrew, I guess, was willing to have a crack at answering Jesus' question. Though they're confident that his suggestion that the boy's small loads of fish was more a sign of kind of clueless bewilderment than a sign of any great faith on his part. You know those people who are more comfortable giving an insane answer than just letting the question hang in silence? I think that was probably Andrew just thinking he'd better speak up and offer something. Both Philip and Andrew, their fixation on what they lacked, on what they didn't have, expressed itself in a, in a form of spiritual tunnel vision. It's curious, isn't it? Their minds didn't immediately turn when Jesus had turned the boy into wine. That other moment which there had been a great lack. And Jesus had provided not only sufficient, but spectacular. Better wine than anything that they had drunk at any other point in the week. But their lack is all that these disciples could see and receive. Sometimes the scarcity, the gnawing absence of what our own hearts most are hungry for can blind us, can dull our senses to what God himself has the capacity to do. And that's the case with the disciples in this situation. Yet far from scoffing at Andrew's rather awkwardly lame suggestion, Jesus takes those meager offerings of bread and fish and transforms them into abundance. I have a look at me picking it up from verse 10. Chapter 6, look down at again, again from verse 10. Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with fish. When they had all had enough to eat, 
said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley left over by Jesus. Notice that Jesus provides not simply enough, not simply as much as the crowd even wanted, but rather more than anyone either needed or And just in case Jesus told disciples, having been paying attention to what's been going on in front of them, Jesus ensures that they each end up collecting an overflowing basket full of food, each basket in and of itself exceeding everything that they actually started with. Those Bible loaves of the fish. It's hardly a surprise when this amazing event provokes some pretty excited questions amongst those who are gathered there in the crowd. Uh, have a look with me at how the crowd responds in verse 14. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who succumbed to the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Surely this is the prophet. Those in the crowd. Notice that they don't just say a prophet, but they say the prophet. What's going on in their minds there? I think almost certainly they have in mind the prophet that Moses himself had spoken about. Flip back with me. You might want to keep your finger in John chapter 6, uh, but I'll ask, it's only for a verse or two, if you'll flip back to uh, page 196. Page 196 in the Pew Bibles. I think their minds are almost certainly being drawn back to this statement by Moses uh, from chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. So it's page 196. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 14, uh, says this. Moses speaking to Israel, to God's people, the nations you will dispossess, that is those who live in the promised land, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. It's hardly surprising, I think, that their thoughts go back to Moses and the prophet that Moses had promised. Just as Moses had miraculously provided Israel with um, food, with bread, during their hunger in the wilderness, so Jesus is to start here on this occasion. And already in the opening verse of chapter 6, it had identified these events as occurring at Passover. That festival in which God's people celebrated Moses leading them out of slavery to freedom. Little wonder that Jesus strikes them as someone who might fit the bill of this prophet like Moses, one who might be able to provide miraculously for them, might be able to lead them as Moses had done. Little wonder that Jesus strikes them as someone who is well suited to leading them to the king. And yet, friends, this desire to make Jesus his king is no confession of Jesus' messiahship. They're not thinking of the Messiah. Jesus simply fits their profile for someone who has the power and the capacity to serve their own ambitions 
and longings, their own desires and hungers. And so their intention was, let's put somebody in power that can deliver what we most pray for. Back in Moses' day, there's that mention of those who lead by sorcery and divination. Even in Moses' day, God's people were tempted to look if we might provide for in ways that didn't involve God's power himself. In Jesus, all these crowds see is someone who can pull off divinely sanctioned sorcery, providing them with food, satisfying their hunger. And that's just about all they see. But Jesus, we'll find out as we read on, isn't just like Moses. Jesus isn't just another prophet, as Moses was. And that becomes abundantly clear in the following passage. Have a look back with me to chapter 6. We'll stay in chapter 6 of John's Gospel for the remainder of our time. And have a look at verse 16. The crowd had eaten. Uh, Jesus has been drawn to the mountainside um, in, under the threat of the crowd coming to make him king. And we read verse 16. When the evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for the river. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, Zion, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Uh, in Exodus, we read the story of how Moses led God's people to freedom from slavery. You might recall that as God parted the Red Sea miraculously, Moses led Israel through walking across on dry ground. In contrast, Jesus is simply walking on the water. No dry ground needed for Jesus. And in the Old Testament, we get a picture of there being only one person who treads the waves of the seas. Let me read these verses for you from Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9, I'll read verse 8 and verse 10. Speaking of God, Job declares, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waters of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When God spoke with Moses on the mountain, you might remember, it resulted in God's people experiencing terror at the thought of God drawing so Yet in the person of Jesus, the disciples end up welcoming the God who treads on the waters of the sea into the intimacy of their very own boat. And they do so without fear. And where it took Moses 40 years to get Israel to the promised land, as soon as God's son steps into their boat, they immediately find out God's presence. Jesus in fact, Moses' greatest failing, you might recall, was that he was a people person. Moses' fear led him to pander to the demands of the people's hunger. They demanded that he provide them with food, 
without first relying on God. And Moses, out of fear, probably out of weariness, he gave way and used his power that God had entrusted to him to give people what they hungered for when they went to Christ. But that's clearly not something that Jesus himself is willing to do. Have a look with me at John again, John chapter 6. I've just shut it, so I'm going to have to look it up. John chapter 6, verse 25. is where I'll read John chapter 6, verse 25. Uh, we read that Jesus had arrived on the other side of the lake. By that point, the crowd had realized he wasn't there and gone searching for him and found him on the other side of the lake. Verse 25. When the crowd found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The crowds come to Jesus. Asking for him to give more of what he'd already given seems kind of reasonable. And yet Jesus' response is, don't work for don't hunger for food that spoils. Jesus exhorts the crowd, don't chase after that, which is of no good either. As God's people had fled from slavery in Egypt, Moses, of course, had miraculously provided manna for them, bread from heaven. But even the bread that Moses miraculously provided only lasted a single day before it was spoiled, before it was filled with maggots and no good friend. Jesus had given this crowd as much bread as they were able to stuff down their greedy gullets just the day before. And yet already their hunger has returned to them with the same force it had yesterday. The very next morning, before the barley loaves had even hit their lower pole, they were hungry again and asking for more. Don't hunger for that which is spoils. Jesus exhorts them. Don't anxiously hunger after that which can only sustain you for at most moment. I began today by reflecting on just how fitting hunger is as a metaphor for all the kinds of desires that. We hunger and thirst for Some of the things that we hunger for, we happily confess to the person sitting alongside us. Some of the desires are available only to us and God. Some of us hunger for recognition, others crave peace of mind. Some are power hungry. Others hunger for deep friendships or safety and intimacy. Some are hungry for purpose. Some are hungry to be truly understood by others. And even when we do get tantalizing tastes of those things we most hunger for, the satisfaction can't last forever. The hunger will return to more of it again at some other time. Our hunger for healing might be frustrated when the chickenpox infection that we thought was cured in us as kids returns unexpectedly again as humans later on in life. We imagine perhaps that our hunger for companionship has at last been met in a power, only for loneliness to return, perhaps with widowhood, or in the face of betrayal. 
success of last week's achievements can lose all their gloss and glory, even before morning tea the following November. Don't hunt back for food that spoils, Jesus says. I didn't come to satisfy today's hunger, only for it to return as strong as ever by breakfast tomorrow morning. Imagine if that was what our sum total of our engagement with God and of Jesus was. Waiting for him to give again what he gave yesterday and hasn't done the job. I didn't come to satisfy today's hunger, only for it to return as strong as ever by breakfast tomorrow morning, Jesus says. Hunger for that which will endure into eternal life. Hunger for that which will continue to satisfy eternally. Hunger for that which I will give you, Jesus says. In verse 27. And yet I think we need to be careful here not to misunderstand what Jesus says it says, I will give you what doesn't fail to satisfy. So Jesus isn't simply making a pitch to become our primary caterer. We used to go somewhere else for satisfaction, you know, maybe work, finances to deliver what we hunger for. Now we just go to Jesus to deliver what we hunger for. Jesus isn't simply offering to become our supplier. He's not promising that he can simply get us a better deal on whatever desires where we already set out. Have a look at me in verse 32 to 35. This is where we'll leave this passage for this week, but we'll come back and have a look at some of these uh, words again next week. Chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven Sir, they said, always give us this bread. You might remember that's very similar to what the Samaritan woman said when Jesus offered to give her water at the well. Sir, give me this water, and I have to keep coming back to you every day. Sir, they said, give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me, I am the bread of life. I myself am the food that will satisfy your hungry hearts. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's a great promise. Maybe it even stirs your own heart a little bit to hear words like that spoken, and yet their meaning is a little bit hard to grasp and a little bit ambiguous. In fact, next week's passage is going to try and dig deeply into this question. What does it mean for Jesus to say, I? Not just that I give you bread, I am the bread. Uh, the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate a little bit later this morning, I think, illustrates something of what this statement means. I don't think we can go into it in its fullness today. We'll come back for next week. But maybe I can just leave you with a brief comment that might at least set the scene, I think, of where Jesus is going, what he means by saying, I don't just give you stuff that your hearts desire, I am. See, there's a difference, isn't there? I think we'll probably all instinctively know this. There's a difference between the person who simply gives us what we ask for and the person who freely offers us their whole self. We know the difference in that level. There's an almighty difference between the person who yields whatever we ask from them and 
gives us an unguarded share in their very self. I think of the parent perhaps, who's got the capacity, the resources to give the child anything they want, but doesn't spend anything of themselves. Or perhaps the partner, the spouse, who is willing to let the other, the other partner, the other spouse, make all the decisions about interior directing, decorating, decide all the uh, locations where they go to on their holiday, decide all the social engagements they really want to go to. Gives over all of that opportunity, but is never there to be a part of that share. We know the difference between the person who simply gives what we want and the person who gives us their whole self. One that lasts, it's going to keep on lasting. It doesn't need to be renewed just a moment by moment. Jesus isn't offering to simply give us what we think we all come for. Jesus isn't offering to simply give us what we think will satisfy our hunger. Jesus has been given from heaven to actually be the one who satisfies. And I wonder if that's perhaps a shift that we need to make in our own, a shift we need to make in our own expectations of Jesus. This, this could be the case for someone who's, who's coming in for the first time, they're only just beginning to get your head around who Jesus might be. It might be for someone who's been a believer, followed Jesus their whole life. Make this shift from thinking of Jesus as being the one who will give us what satisfies our hunger to seeing him as the one who will be satisfaction for our deepest hunger. See, if we're expecting Jesus to address our hunger in the first way, then our experience of faith will always be framed only by our sense of scarcity, uh, framed by what we lack, by what we don't have. That's all we'll be able to see. Do you remember at the beginning of the passage, Philip and Andrew, Jesus asked them a question, all they could see or think about was what they didn't have, what they didn't have. And it's possible if we think of Jesus as the one who just gives us what we desire for. But that's all we'll see as well. An empty space waiting for Jesus to hurry up fill. And yet to grasp that Jesus is offering us his very self, that's to see that his offering is something that has not been failed. To see that his offering is something that will never spoil or fail or fade wherever go cold, is to recognize that in Jesus we're being offered someone who will satisfy both now and into eternal life as well. Next week we'll come back and reflect a little bit more on what it means that Jesus gives us his very selves. But perhaps you can keep that thought in your own head uh, as we come to approach the Lord's Supper in a moment's time as well. Because you'll probably see some resonance of the ideas we're Expressed in the service that we share on this Dearest Father, we are so often moved by those hungers, those desires, and longings that grip us, those longings beyond which we struggle to see anything else. And yet, Father, we wonder that Jesus is not someone who simply what we want. 
into it himself. For himself then, the answer to our hungers and our longings and our desires. Not just on a day-by-day basis, but from now on into eternity. Father, we ask that your spirit might increasingly enable us to look to the Lord Jesus to be the one who satisfies and puts our hearts in one place. Father, we pray especially in the Turn to this passage next Sunday. That we begin to grasp what it 